Welcome. Welcome to, uh, to Mercy Hill, guys. My name is, is Nick. I'm uh, one of the elders here, uh, teaching elder, if you will. And I, uh, I'm going to be bringing God's word to us here this morning. Um, if I haven't met you, always would love to, to put out the, the um, opportunity to you. I'd love to meet you afterwards. Please come up, say hi. Hang out. I have a little something going on, I think, immediately after the service, but I have a few minutes. I'd love to say hi. So please do that. Um, also, I will let you know that next week, uh, Patty and Jason, who on a weekly basis are serving our church by leading us in uh, musical worship, uh, they are going to get a much needed break. So I am actually going to be on the guitar. Get, get ready. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, my good brother, he's not here this morning. I think actually it might be his birthday weekend. He might be celebrating somewhere. Paul Walton is going to be um, cracking off from the pulpit. So it should be good. Uh, I'd encourage you all to be here. Um, but with that, thank you. If Kosiwan Sanvi, thank you for that. We really appreciate you guys stepping into that role. I think we shared that last week, and uh, we'll continue to share that. Thank you guys so much for the way you serve this church and serve our children. Um, we're in Luke's Gospel. Let's open up to Luke chapter 1. If you need a Bible, uh, the ushers are coming by. Please raise your hand. We're happy to give you one. And uh, if you don't have one, or if you want to give it away to a friend who doesn't have one, you can keep it. And if you have a mustache like Chris Stringham, you can keep it. <laughs> uh, Luke 1, verse 5. We're going to read down to uh, verse 17. And then I'll, I'll pray for us here before we begin. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I better move this before I get started, because I'm going to knock it over. Now, let's pray. <laughs> what an amazing moment in history, Lord. 
the announcement of the birth of not only the one who would come before the Messiah, but soon, Luke 1, we'd see the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. In other words, your intervention, your intrusion into history, in the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater, Lord, that we could contemplate today. Nothing more significant for our lives. Nothing more significant for the cosmos. than the coming of your Son into history. Jesus, we know you've come. We know you've gone. We know you've ascended. We know you're here by the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, be present in our midst today. I pray that you would open our eyes to see in your law wondrous things. And open our hearts to respond to these wondrous things in a way that they are worthy of. With fullness of joy, praise. I pray where people are doubting God, you would stir up faith and trust. I pray where people are are, are struggling with sin, you would give them resolve for the fight. More than anything, I pray you would exalt Christ in our midst here this morning again. We need to see Him, that as we see in Him the glory of God, we would be transformed more and more into His image. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Is... Life, meaningless. Is life meaningless? Uh, Did the existentialist philosophers, I had to read some of this in school, some of you maybe have no idea what I'm talking about. Did they get it right? When they said that we're kind of born and hurled into this chaos, and then when we die, we just kind of recede back into chaos. There's no transcendent reality, no meaning to your life, no purpose. You live, you die, and that's it. We might, during our time here, project myths onto the world around us, get some sort of conceived order, some sort of story that makes us feel better about the chaos. But at the end of the day, we've got to face up to it. History, life, going nowhere. Meaningless. Perhaps another way of asking the question, is history cyclical, Right? This idea of just a circle. We're just going around and around and around in a cul-de-sac, just driving the same thing again and again. That's what history is. Some nations rise and then they fall, triumphs and then fail. 
We live, we die, we go in circles. We go nowhere. I was reading just a little bit up on what some of these guys say, and one of the guys referred to um, the world around us as this mute irrationality. It's Albert Camus. In other words, the world, creation, nature, history, it's not speaking anything because it's nonsense. It's not going anywhere. What do you believe? There might be a few of us in here that um, aren't believers, and we welcome you. You might actually buy into some of this. You watch the news. You're a pretty perceptive person. And you see, we're not getting any better. We bring in, you know, new leaders, new whatever. We buy new products, create new technology, and we're not really getting anywhere. So this might be your worldview. We live, we die, there's nothing else. Get over it. Christianity, that's just kind of like a crutch for the weak people that can't handle the fact that life is absurd. You heard that before? If it makes you feel better, great, but let's be honest, it's not true. This idea of eternal life and going somewhere significant, come on. Come on, that's a fairy tale. I read those kind of stories to my kids before they go to bed. Some of you might actually be buying into that, but I assume most of us are believers here in this room. And because of that, I doubt you would ever say the words that are coming out of my my mouth right now. That there's no meaning, no purpose. But I wonder if you felt it. You might not communicate, this is my position on reality. But I wonder if you have been tempted to feel like, my life is a joke. It's a failure. I'm going nowhere fast. I'll give you a little example from my life. Uh, so, I'm like, oh, I need more time with Jesus. You know, this season's been really busy and I'm, I'm prone to be distracted by all the stuff that's on my plate. And I'm like, I, I need more time with Jesus. I got to get up earlier and get time alone before the girls are up and all these things so I can hopefully fellowship with my Savior, right? So I'm getting up. I'm tiptoeing down the hall. I don't want to wake anybody up, you know. I'm getting the coffee ready. And then I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm sitting down on my chair. And I kid you not, it's like I, I, I sit down and bam, like Chloe just knows it. She's out. Daddy, what you doing? Is it time to get? No, Chloe, it's, it's not. It's really early. Daddy's up a little earlier today. Let's go back to, no! And what happens? Bella's up. <laughs> and then a couple days of this, and you want to know what's going on in my heart? You want to know what I'm even saying? This is stupid. This is pointless. What am I doing with spending all this energy and effort? I'm getting up just early just to get more frustrated and get nowhere. This is, what is the point? In a more melodramatic way, you might say, it's like, 
Where is God? Is He even there? If He is there, He's against me. That's how it feels. Something as little as that, but we can feel this. This Life is pointless. It's not going anywhere. I don't know what it might be for you. Maybe I didn't plan to be single. Serious. Yeah. I didn't plan to be single. I was dating and doing all these things and then nothing, nothing panned out. I'm even on online dating sites. Nothing. What's the point of my life? Why am I even trying? Maybe it's that your career for you. It's, you know, I want that promotion. I'm working so hard to get this, this, this new job, this, something that can make me feel like my life counts, and it just doesn't come. I'm doing all this stuff to try to get the boss's attention, and the promotion never comes. Or maybe it's your body, you know, you're young, and, and it, you, you find it hard even just to get out of bed in the morning because your body's so broken. You just go, what? I don't see the point. I don't want to get up. I don't want to get up. <laughs> the purpose of this is not going anywhere meaningful. To put it another way, the question we seem to be asking is, is there anything or anyone moving this apparent chaos forward to a meaningful end goal? In other words, is there a plan? Is there a plan? Somewhere, somehow, am I in a plan, in a story that's going towards something more significant than this silly little moment? that brings back in so much significance to every moment. Does that exist? You're probably wondering where the heck I'm going with this. But I believe this would have been Israel's burning question at this point in their history. I believe that this would have been their question. Where is God? Now, in verse 5, it is true that we stand on the threshold of this magnificent divine intrusion. Like I prayed, the announcements of John the Baptist, we see the birth of John the Baptist there. And then in verses 26 through 38, the the long-awaited Christ, His birth is announced. But if we linger on verse 5 for a moment, this tension emerges, okay? This despair emerges hundreds of years of bitter history lay behind this single verse. Unrealized hopes and dreams, disillusion, disarray, disenchantment, years that led, I am sure, in Israel to a culminating cry of, what is the point? I'll show you where I see that. Verse 5, first part, in the days of Herod, King of Judea. Probably just read that over. Oh, that's just a little time stamp. Luke's just giving context. I think if you're a Jew, you read that and you shudder. You want to know why? Herod, King, Judea. Herod wasn't of the line of 
David? He wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was of Esau. You remember that hard word God said? Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. What is Esau doing over Jacob in the place of David in Jerusalem? What is going on here? Whatever happened to the plan and the promise? Has Yahweh forgotten? Is He even there at all? Hundreds of years of history, I imagine for sure they are saying at this point, forget it. What's the point? So verse 5 is going to be our text this morning. I'm going to read it in its fullness again and show us where we're going to go. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. It is my thesis here today that while the first part of this verse sets up a bitter tension, we're under Herod, he's king in Judea. What is going on? The latter part of this verse relieves it. You probably don't see it yet. You will when we're done. The question, is this pointless? What's the point? Receives in this verse uh, an emphatic answer. Has God forgotten us? No. No. In the sending of His Son, He answers for all of us. No, you are not forgotten. No, my plans, my promises have not been abandoned. I've just been waiting for the right time. So this morning, we're going to proceed through three major headings. First, Yahweh plans. Second, Yahweh promises. Third, Yahweh remembers. So first, Yahweh plans. Um, I believe that if we are to truly perceive the bitter tension and glorious relief that is brought into view in verse 5, uh, we need to get some of the backstory. We need to go back to see why attention even exists at all. Why is this a big deal? And that's because of the promises and the plan God's revealed to Israel, right? And we start with His plan in particular. Yahweh plans because behind and beneath every promise God ever makes is His eternal unchanging plan. Okay? His plan, if you will... It's kind of, it's, it's, it's going all the way back to eternity past, running all the way forward to eternity future. His plan is as stable as His being. And He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? I am who I am. Yahweh. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians 1.11, He works. Listen to this. He, Yahweh, God, works all things according to the counsel or plan of His will. All things He's working according to His plan. All the 
disparate, sprawling, seemingly chaotic facts of the universe find coherence in Him. They are ordered, they are governed, they are mobilized and advanced by Him to a meaningful end. Even though there's radical diversity in the world, His plan brings it all into unity. You believe this? Your God this big? Is He the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will? Or like I said back there, is He the God who is in the heavens doing all that He pleases? Does God just kind of react in history to the twists and turns of mankind? He doesn't even know where it's going to go, how it's going to end up. Or is He the God of history? Is your God that big? Is His plan that stable? I believe the existentialists got it wrong. (laughs) That's why I'm here. That's why I think this matters. Even though I can feel like I'm going around in circles. It's another Sunday. I got another sermon. Is this really doing any good? Is the word increasing and bearing fruit? Yes! I believe it is. I believe it is. This sovereign God is the God that Luke presents to us here. The God of the plan. As you read Luke and Acts in these two volumes, it's one of his major themes. Many, many, many a scholar notes this because it's so obvious. He is wanting to show that what God is doing in Christ is a continuation of his plan of old. And in the first coming of Christ, that plan reaches a climax. And in his second coming, it will reach consummation. Right? This is what Luke is, is, is desperate to show us all through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Let me show you one of the ways that he's trying to do it here in our, our Gospel. He uses what you would call illusions all over the place. It is overwhelming, especially in these first two chapters, which you would call like the infancy narrative. They're dealing with Christ as, a, as an infant, as a youth, right? Chapters 1 and 2. These allusions are basically references, sometimes subtle, kind of echoes, but lines drawn back to the Old Testament. It's why if you have a Bible that has cross-references, right, in here, you'll look and you're like, whoa, what are all those? Luke is constantly referencing back to the Old Testament. And what we find is that behind the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Behind the story of Joseph and Mary, John and Jesus, I mean, it's incredible, is the story of Abraham and Sarah, the story of Moses and the Exodus, the story of David and Solomon, the story of exilic despair and prophetic hope. All of that packed in, especially to these first two chapters, because he's wanting to show God has always had a plan. From the beginning, going to this point. He's the God of the plan. I, I, I'm not even kidding you. When I was, um, I was in a coffee shop, kind of preparing for some of these messages, trying to get a handle on the first two chapters. And 
I'm seeing all these things. And I must have probably leaped out of my chair in Starbucks. I, just, I have no idea how I'm going to convey all the allusions, all the Old Testament references, all the stories he's bringing into view in these two chapters. I have no idea. I'm gonna, it's inevitable that I'm going to miss some of them, and that's okay. But, you know, you've heard the phrase, like, oh, you're, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. I'm telling you, this is like drinking from a tsunami. It's like every stream, every stream of the Old Testament is now coming together, converging at this single point in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're just sitting there going, what in the world is that? That's what Luke wants us to see. He wants us to get our minds, our hearts around this Christ and his fulfillment of this eternal plan. You're on it right now. Stable beneath your feet. You might not feel it. You're on it. I should say in it, right? Not path, plan. Another perhaps... Uh, more accessible way that Luke is going to try to highlight the plan of God for us in this project is um, his overwhelming use of a single Greek word um, throughout Luke and Acts. I'll give you a couple examples, but it's translated as either it is necessary or it must. Okay? Must. The word is used 99 times in the New Testament, 40 used by Luke. Let me give you some instances of this so you can get a, get a sense of the plan that Luke is drawing our attention to. Luke 2.49 is the first instance, and it's when Joseph and Mary are looking for the young Jesus. They find him in the temple, and what does he say? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be here. That's an interesting way of putting it. Or later... Luke 4:43 Jesus is talking about his mission and he says I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well I must That's why I was sent Interesting I'm starting to catch that there's something underneath all that Jesus is doing something behind all that Jesus is doing Or Luke 21:9 and there again I'm just picking a few here Speaking of the end of the world, Jesus says, When you hear of wars and tumults, and do not be terrified, for these things, what? Must first take place. So we're left, after reading some of these must statements, we're left asking, why must it? <laughs> why must it be this way? Answer, plan. It draws our attention to the ever-advancing plan of God. It must be this way, and then the end will come. I don't know how else to read that. Luke wants us to see that beneath every historical fact is a theological must. So, no matter how crazy, how chaotic how meaningless, how pointless your life feels right now, I want you to know you're in his plan. You're standing. You're standing in it. <laughs> and he's going to move forward. There is a point to all of this. Now, second, Yahweh promises. Because Yahweh not only plans, he also promises. Here's the reality. We would have no idea what his plan was if he didn't give us his promises. 
His promises, if you will, are essentially um, him letting us in on his eternal plan. If the plan is kind of the Alpha Omega, right? It's running from eternity past to eternity future. The promises show up in time and space. He speaks to people like us, temporally conditioned and, and defined, right? And limited. He speaks words about that plan to us so that we know what he's doing. Yahweh plans. Yahweh promises. His promises, another way of putting it, reveal his plan. So, okay, we have the plan of God, like like a bedrock path beneath our feet, right? It's going forward. We have the promises of God, like a lamp unto our feet. Now, here's the question. If we got the plan, we got the promises, why do we have a problem? <laughs> What's the problem? Why are we despairing? Why are we doubting? Why are we struggling? Why am I at my, at my you know, uh, breakfast table going, What's the point of this? This is so silly. I'm just wasting my time. I think the answer lie in the... Uh, the nature of a promise. This is what a promise is. A promise is me speaking into the present something I'm going to do in the future. Right? And that's where the tension lies between the, the hearing of the words and the seeing of it actually come you know, into fruition. This is where we get to the the tension that exists in verse 5. Because here's the deal. What happens? What happens if, okay, Nick, you're saying that I'm on this bedrock path and all this. What happens if it feels like the ground is shaking? It feels crazy. It feels chaotic. What then? And that, that is exactly where they're at, I think, in verse 5. Read it again. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. We'll stop there. Israel had been given incredible promises. Incredible promises. Insights into his plan for them and for the world. And I don't think anyone could interpret the contemporary scene in, in at the turn of the... What do you even call that? It's not millennia. It's like the turn of the era. What do you call that? When it turns from B.C. to A.D.? I don't even know. But I don't think any of them could understand, could interpret what was going on with them. Right? We got all these promises that led us into this plan. What in the world are we doing under Herod as king of Judea? Let me give you some of the backstory. story. Um, it might help. You see the confusion that they're having at this point. You might recall promises made to Abraham. Promises made to Abraham that God would give him a land. Okay? That God would give him uh, offspring. That a nation would come for him. That even kings would come forth from him. This is Genesis 12, Genesis 6 or 17. And later, a king does come from Abraham, right? David. And God makes these promises to David. David's ruling in Jerusalem, right? First real king, if you will, other than Saul, who ended up getting deposed. First real king of Israel. And God promises to him what? Your throne is going to be everlasting, David. It's going to be everlasting. I'm going to set your son on that throne. And it's never going to end. 
is never going to end. But his son does get on that throne, Solomon, and with his idolatries and things, his moral corruption, the kingdom starts to totter. It divides eventually. It ends. They go off into exile, right? Under the Babylonians. They raise the temple to the ground. Where's the symbol of God's presence with us? It's gone. And they're taken to a foreign land. Where's the promise of Abraham? Where's the promise of David? Where's this kingdom? Where's this people? Where's this land? Where's this God? Well, even in exile, God sends the prophets, right? To give them these amazing promises. Amazing promises of restoration to the land and a re-enthronement of a Davidic king. So they're saying, this is going to be awesome. 70 years or so here, God's going to do it. And then guess what? Cyrus conquers the Babylonians, Cyrus of Persia, and he issues a decree and says, what? All right, guys, Jews, anyone who wants, go back up to your land and build for your God a temple. And they're thinking, this is it. This is the age of fulfillment. Now it's all going to happen. What Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were talking about, it's going on now. And they get to the land with guys like Zerubbabel, Joshua, Ezra, Nehemiah. And they're building the temple, doing these things. And then there's this haunting scene, haunting scene in Ezra 3 where they just laid the foundation of this this second temple now, right? And it says this, but many of the priests, this is Ezra 3.12, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house wept aloud with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. It says there's like this confused mixture of people that are a part of a new generation seeing the temple thinking, the promises are here! This is going to be amazing! And then those who had seen the first temple are there going, this doesn't seem like all I'd hoped it would be. This doesn't remind me of the first one. Is this really... The age of fulfillment? Is, is this really going to be the, 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 the God's uh, enactment of all those promises? And we're given this subtle indication here. Something's off. Something's off. And the, the amazing thing, in Jewish tradition actually, I was looking at this, they note a number of significant things that were missing from this second temple. They all knew it. Two, in my opinion, of the most significant the Ark of the Covenant? Where is it? We don't know. It wasn't there. And the glory that filled the first temple. No mention of it at all. Where is the Ark of His presence? Where is the glory of His presence? What is going on? And beyond this, Davidic king. No Davidic king, after they return to the land and they build the temple and they get walls around it under Nehemiah. No Davidic king sitting on a throne. They're still under the Persians. They're still subject to foreign rule. Where are the promises? And then, you know what? The Old Testament just ends. (laughs) It just ends. 
with Malachi, and he's dealing with all the same sins that sent them into exile in the first place, and you just get this sense, what's really changed? Sure feels like a circle to me. They've gone out, they've come back. What's changed? And then, you know what? In the 400 or so years that existed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the last verse of Malachi, first verses of Luke, often called the 400 silent years because there was no prophet to tell them what to do. It just felt like they were left to themselves. This period, often called the intertestamental period or the second temple period, it just gets even more chaotic. I was reading about this because I, I got to refresh on what actually happened there. I want to know what the Jews were feeling in verse 5 of Luke 1 under Herod. So here's what happens. The Greeks come in, defeat the Persians, right? Now we're under the Greeks like Alexander the Great and others. And then you want to know what happens? The high priest starts going to the highest bidder. Antiochus Epiphanes giving it away. Who's going to pay me the most? I don't care if you're of the line of Aaron. If you want a little power in your community, pay me. And then the high priest ushers Antiochus Epiphanes into the temple to plunder it for his, to support his military exploits. This is the second temple. This is, this is what we've got in between the Testaments. And then that same king and, and, uh, um, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and desecrates the temple, right? Slaughtering pigs on the altar. So you got now some other characters here called the Maccabees who see this and they want to be true to God's law and they're going, this is outrageous. If God's not going to fulfill His promises, we will. We will. We're going to rise up. Uh, They're called the Maccabees, not because that was actually their last name, because in the Hebrew it probably means hammer. (laughs) We're going to raise up, we're going to drop the hammer on the Greeks, and we're going to establish, we're going to get our independence. We're going to make some of those promises start to come into play. And so they do it, and they actually get a king in there for a little while. I don't think it was a Davidic king or anything. It didn't last long before there was civil war, and they end up back under the Romans. Romans come in with Pompeii, and back under our control. Thank you very much. And then Mark Antony sets Herod, the Edomite, as king of Judea. Does that sound like a circle to you? Does that sound meaningless to you? Does that sound like, where? <laughs> what is the point? We were in exile out of our land. Now, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we're in exile in our land. Yahweh's forgotten. This is going nowhere. And then, point number three, Yahweh remembers. Keep reading verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. After hundreds of years of despairing that they would ever see the fulfillment of God's promises to them, Yahweh is about to intervene. 
And I said that tension from the first part of verse 5 is relieved in the second part. How? It's awesome. You know what Zechariah means in the Hebrew? Or in the, yeah, in the Hebrew. It means Yahweh remembers. It's, it's, it's very interesting because historians look back and they see this, this, this uh, massive popularity of the name Zechariah in the exilic and post-exilic times. Everyone's naming their kid Zechariah as if to say, God, please, Yahweh, please remember. And then Yahweh shows up to Yahweh remembers and Yahweh remembers. It's amazing. But what does he remember? You want to know what the name of Elizabeth is in Hebrew, most likely? My God has sworn. In other words, he remembers what he's sworn. Let's put this together then. Yahweh, my God, remembers what he's sworn. He remembers his oath, his covenant, his promise, his plan. Yahweh remembers... My God has sworn. We're given this sort of this little picture in the very first verse about all that's going to happen. I have not forgotten my plan, my promises. Today I remember. It's not surprising then if we look down a little bit at, at uh, what happens uh, in the story in, in Luke 1 that we see the, these praise hymns. Of, of Mary and of Zechariah. And this is what they're praising God for. Remembering His oath. Remembering what He's sworn. Look at Luke 1, 54 to 55. Overwhelmed with joy, Mary praises Yahweh saying this, He has helped His servant in remembrance of His mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He's remembering all of that now. Or later, Luke 1, 72 to 73, when Zechariah now is singing, and he's singing about the Davidic Messiah, and he says that God is doing all of this, raising up someone to sit on the throne of David, Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father, Abraham. All that stuff back here that they thought is never going to come into play is coming into play today. That's what God said. Now, all of this is reminiscent of um, that constitutive moment in Israel's history. I've talked about this before. Let me run through it very quickly. It's amazing. The, the exodus from Egypt. The exodus from Egypt. Kind of the defining moment for Israel as the people of God. Now, check this out. How long was Israel in Egypt? Anybody know? 400 years. That's interesting. 400, you could say silent years. It just, Genesis ends with Joseph and begins with the Exodus. 
And they've been in slavery, afflicted in Egypt, 400 years, Genesis 15, 13. 400 years, 400 silent years. I'm sitting there going, oh, that's crazy. And we're told in Exodus 2, 24, how all this begins, that God heard their groaning. Why did God set them free in the Exodus? Because he heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. You've been floundering, you've been wondering what's the point. Today I remember what I told to Abraham, that they would be there 400 years. Whoops, I knew that was going to happen. And then I would take them out. I would enact my promises. Well, something actually, this guy broke. Whoops, sorry Donald. Taking me okay? I owe you money. Um, but there's more. So he takes them through the Red Sea, right? He redeems them, brings them out into freedom. And what does he do? He then leads them to Sinai, gives them his law, makes him their king. Covenant with them. I will be your king. This is the establishment of the theocracy. And what are the people doing? on the, 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 the banks of the Red Sea after these moments. You know what they're doing? Singing hymns. Exodus 15 is just a hymn. A hymn in light of all that God has done. So I'm looking at some of these parallels and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, 400 years going, where is God? Then God remembers. Then He brings them out in Christ. He's going to make a covenant with them, write His law on their hearts, set Himself over them as King. We're just singing about the whole thing. All these parallels are meant to get us to see there is a new and greater exodus coming. And Jesus is going to be put over us as King. The Messiah is here. But here's the crazy thing, right? It's going to come in the way nobody would expect. Is it hot in here? I see people fanning. I'm feeling hot. You okay? All right. I'll draw this here close soon, I promise. It's going to come in a way no one's going to expect. This exodus is not going to free us from the Egyptians. Not going to free us from the Persians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans. It's going to free us from sin. It's going to free us from ourselves. It's going to free us from that sense of that caused us to leave God in the first place. I will be king, we said, <laughs> not you. God's going to deal with our sin, bring, him, bring us back to Him, and establish Himself again as King over us. You see, all the plan was marching and advancing towards the cross. All of His promises pointing forward to the cross. When Yahweh remembers, when Yahweh remembers the cross, here's the most amazing thing. He does it so he can forget our sin. Isn't that the new covenant promise? Right? That is it. When God's saying, listen, when I brought you out of Egypt, this is Jeremiah 31, I brought you out of Egypt, made a covenant with you, that's great, but you broke it. Didn't work. This time when I bring you out of Egypt, I'll make a new covenant. And the punchline is, I will forgive your iniquities. I will remember your sins no more. 
He's going to truly free us. He's going to truly establish himself as king by going to death for us on the cross. But we know he raised from the dead, right? And then three days later, or I'm sorry, three days later he raised from the dead and then he ascends to the Father. And what is he telling his disciples as they're all excited? Oh my gosh, are you gonna, you're going to do the kingdom thing now, right? Here, now. All that stuff we were hoping was going to happen was the rubber bell's going to happen now, right? He said, no. It's not for you to know the times fixed by my Father and his authority. Not for you to know. So we, as Christians now, live in another period of promise between his first coming and the second and so we stand then on this, this bedrock path of his plan, having the lamp unto our feet of his promises, but sometimes going, what's going on? I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing how he's moving. And you know what we have? We have an option. How are we going to respond? This is where I'll leave you. Are we going to be Herods in these moments? You want to know what Herod represents as far as I'm concerned? I don't care about God's plan. It's about my plan. I want to be king. It's an anxious business being a Herod. I'll tell you that right now. He knew he was an imposter to the throne. He knew and he tried to get the Jews to, to, to follow him and to, 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 to appreciate him and they never did. He's sleeping with one eye open all the time. You're trying to be in control, but you're not. My plan is marching forward. No, it's not. Your plan is very shaky because it comes up against the plan of Almighty God. And this is why, I mean, when you try to pretend like you're in control, who needs God? I've, I've got this. When you try to pretend like you're in control, you don't know how, it makes you crazy. This is what happened with Herod. He kills his wife, kills his son. And when that, when that prophecy kind of comes up with the, with the Magi, they say, whoa, a, a king has been born. In Israel, he said, oh my gosh, i got to kill the children in Bethlehem. I don't want a king taking over my plan. He's fighting against God and it is futile. And some of us in this room might even be in that place. I don't need his promises. I don't need his plan. I've got it. It's anxious ridden, isn't it? It's horrible. Trying to pretend like you're a king when you were meant to be under the king of kings. Here's the crazy thing. We as his children, we, the inheritors of the promise in Christ, we can still sometimes live like that. And I would say we can sometimes choose, unfortunately, to live like a Maccabee. You could be Herod, you don't want to be a Herod. You could be a Maccabee, that might sound a little bit better. Maccabee says, okay, I have the plan, I see the plan, I have the promises. I'm not seeing them come into fruition. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to drop the hammer and let's start the age of fulfillment now. I want to see some good things happen in my life. I know God promises it, but I don't see it. So let's get to it. They aim, Maccabees do, they aim for Isaacs. They end up with Ishmael's. Maybe there's a Maccabean revolt going on in your heart right now. Things aren't working the way you want. God, what's going on? I'm about to take this. I could take the reins here. And you know what? Again, you have the promises, but you don't have the peace. 
He wants you to, to rest in Him and to trust, to wait. He said, no, I don't want to. You don't want to be a Herod. You don't want to be a Maccabee. You want to know what you want to be? A Simeon or an Anna. I won't go there. I won't go there. I know I'm keeping you late. <laughs> but in, in Luke 2, Simeon and Anna are pictured as the faithful remnant of Israel. Okay? They're there in the temple, almost like night and day, it seems. It's definitely said that of Anna. She's fasting, worshiping, praying, night and day. You want to know what it says they're doing? Both of them, it says, waiting for the redemption of Israel, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for God to remember His promises of old, waiting for Him to enact His plan. They didn't give up on God and go off with their own plan. They didn't try to fulfill God's plans for Him. They waited. His job is to remember His promises and act. Ours is to remember His promises and wait for Him to act. And you want to know what they experienced when the baby Jesus was brought in and dedicated in the temple? Utter joy. I want you to know that. I want to know that. The joy of waiting and trusting through the hard times and then seeing God show up. I knew it. I knew you were faithful. I knew you remember. I knew it. Ah, thank you, God. I didn't just grab the reins. I trusted my Savior in everything He said, even when what I saw disagreed with what I've heard. We want to be Simeons. We want to be Annas. He he plans. He promises. He will remember. Jesus, thank you, thank you that you give us your word. You don't have to let us into your plan. (laughs) You don't have to uh, allow us to be on the good side of your plan. Lord, thank you that by grace you bring us in to your Son, the one in whom every promise is yes. Thank you, Jesus, that we are now in the age of fulfillment. Thank you, Lord, that you have begun to reign And we can trust that you will come and fully establish that reign in your second coming. In between, God, please, I pray, help us to be like Simeon and Anna. Help us to wait. Help us to trust. God, I'm praying specifically for those people that feel like they're in the first part of verse 5. They feel like Yahweh's forgotten. They feel like you're not in their story. You're not moving it, advancing it towards a good end. God, I pray, would you please move them into the second part of verse 5? Would you show them that Yahweh remembers, my God has sworn. You don't forget your promises. All you forget is our sin so you can be for us forever. You will remember us, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to trust you and wait and experience the peace that comes from fellowship with you even in suffering. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.